Hi, I'm Joe Lonsdale. Welcome to the American Optimist. I'm really excited to have my friend Arthur Brooks here with us today. Arthur is a former president of AEI. He's a best-selling author. He's a column in the Atlantic. You're and you're a professor at Harvard now these days. Yeah, yeah. For two years, I've been a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and the Harvard Business School. Awesome. Well, well, th- thanks for being here. I, w- I want I want to chat about. There's a bunch of stuff to go over. You've been writing a lot about happiness lately. Yeah. And uh, is this is this is it, are we in a crisis of happiness? Is that what? Why are you really focused on this lately? It's something you've really been spending a lot of time on. Yeah. Well, I've, as a social scientist, I, I was trained in a lot of these behavioral principles that ultimately what they matter for is to for all of us to lead more prosperous happier lives. And I've done a lot of things in the meantime. When I was a professor at Syracuse, I was doing the typical things that you do when you're an assistant professor, an associate professor, full pro- you're kind of going up through the ranks by, by publishing academic journal articles. But my passion was always to try to do something that would, that would address these cravings that people have in their lives, ultimately. So when I came back to academia after running the think tank, I thought to myself, I mean, I, I basically retired. And I said, okay, what am I going to do with the last 20 years of my career? And there really wasn't any choice. I want to lift people up and bring them together. I mean, what's most important in my life is happiness and love. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to dedicate myself to, as a social scientist, to studying happiness and love and bringing the ideas of how happiness and love can permeate other people's lives most effectively, how we can understand intellectually the science, apply it to our lives, and share it with other people. And so understanding happiness, applying happiness, and sharing happiness is what I'm going to do until I die. Well, and one of the stats in your columns, I think there was something like up to somewhere around ninety or hundred thousand dollars that actually affects you to make more money and you're happier because you can you can afford basics or whatnot. But after that, it doesn't really help with happiness. And it's interesting because you worked on prosperity for so long right. at AEI, but it, does prosperity really matter to happiness then beyond a certain point, or, or how should we be thinking about that? So the the way that the the data basically work, and we don't actually know where the threshold is because different estimates say different amounts, whether it's $75,000 a year or $150,000 a year, but it doesn't matter. At some point, we inflect and get very flat in the what we call the affect balance curve. Now, what affect balance is, is this balance between unhappiness and happiness. And, and for the longest time, people would interpret this and say, you know, people would say how good they feel about their lives. They would get really, really flat around $100,000 a year and say, okay, turns out your grandma was right, Joe. Money doesn't buy happiness. I know you love your grandma. And and we, don't we all love our grandmothers? And, and, and they were my, my turning 101 in July. It, really? Yeah. In, in, in Massachusetts. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right, my baby. And, uh, you know, and, and so it's true what they said, but they, but it's more complicated than that. And there's some some wrinkles in this thing that people need to understand. To begin with, Money never bought happiness, even early on. You find that people actually have a higher affect balance. They feel better about their lives. When they go from poor to not poor, it's absolutely true. But it's not because they're getting happier. This sounds like I'm splitting hairs. Mm -hmm. They get less unhappy. Got it. So Affect- just, unhappiness is created by poverty. Exactly right. And so what you're doing is what, what money can do at low levels, it can alleviate the sources of unhappiness. You sound now. a little you sound stop you sound a little bit like the left though, in the sense that the mistake a lot of people make is that is that is they forget that everyone was always poor for for ten for tens of thousands of years, right? Because right? every based on our current definition, everyone was always poor. Were they always just more unhappy then? Is like civilization shifted to be happier then by definition over the last three hundred years? Because yeah. what happened? well, you know that, that's a good question. We actually don't know because we don't have longitudinal data going back hundreds of years yeah. in, in terms of affect balance. But there's no reason to think that three hundred years ago it was just fine and dandy that half your kids died in infancy. That you, that, you know, it, it, sure. I mean, there were societal standards that were different and there were cultural norms and, and people had different ways of dealing with But you're probably pretty miserable a lot. Yeah, and dying of preventable diseases. Or, of course, then they weren't preventable. 
And so people actually treated them in different ways. So no doubt that our perspective has shifted, but there's no reason to think that losing a child is any better, was any better then than it is today. So it's not purely, it's not purely relative. No, it's not purely relative. Almost certainly it's not purely relative. So what's going on? And when I say happiness and unhappiness, keep in mind, they're not opposites. Happiness and unhappiness are, as cognitions, are processed in different hemispheres of the prefrontal cortex. Literally, a different part of your brain is lighting up when you're having unhappy feelings as opposed to happy feelings. And so what's going on in affect balance, you don't know what part of your prefrontal cortex is lighting up. All you know is you feel better when you're, you know, when you're 25 years old and you're, you're barely making your rent. And then you make a, have a 25% increase and you feel better about life. I remember this, you know, cause I, you know, you know, my backstory is I, I dropped out of college and I finished college a month before my 30th were, birthday by correspondence. You, you're, you're a mus- traveling musician. Yeah. For I was a, a classical time. musician. For were, you, many years. were you happier when you were a musician? Than no, anything? actually no. I wasn't. And, and there were a bunch of reasons for that, but I was actually both less happy and unhappier. And one of the reasons I was really unhappy during those years, I remember there was a six year period where I couldn't afford to go to the dentist. That's pretty bad. Yeah. Now, now, well, I mean, don't feel too bad for me. I never remember going without cigarettes. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. this is a question of, of, of choices too. But I remember when I finally was able to get my head above water economically and I was able to go to the dentist for the first time and I felt so much better. So what happens is you relieve unhappiness and, if, and, and improve your affect balance up to a certain relatively low threshold by American standards. Should we have a philanthropy that get, brings people to the dentist well, this can't is the, afford this, it? So this is, is the, the, yeah. so this is the question. I mean, that, there's, there's all kinds of good reasons, by the way, to say that we need a basic level of health care. And in point of fact, we do. It's called Medicaid. Yep. Now, the question is whether or not it should be means independent. And these are all public policy questions that we need to answer. Yep. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking what people ordinarily do. The big mistake that people make in their lives is that they go from the bottom through kind of these low economic levels, noticing that they're feeling better. Mm-hmm. And then they say, oh, therefore more money, I'm going to feel better. And they chase the cookie for the rest of their life. It's like Pavlov's dogs. You got programmed early on to thinking that your affect balance is going to get better. You're going to feel better. Are they working too hard to try to make them more money or what's, what, why is it a problem? It's a problem because they're never, they're on the hedonic treadmill. They actually never get the satisfaction. They want more, but they never get what they want, but they're always fooled. This is why it's very important for all of us to remember. Satisfaction doesn't come from what you have. Satisfaction comes from what you have divided by what you want. And each of us, if we actually want to find enduring satisfaction, no matter where we are economically, we need a wants management strategy. So each year, the worst, most metastatically stupid idea in Western society, in American society, is the bucket list. Mm-hmm. The bucket list is like, I'm going to make a list of all my cravings and attachments and desires, and I'm going to pour over it. And all that does is it lowers my These are really satisfaction. But isn't it, isn't it good for people to be striving to work harder and build things, though, if, as an economist? This is your you know? point. This yeah. gets to your point. So yeah. you said, okay, so does that mean that you know money doesn't matter? None of it? No. Money per se doesn't matter. But what you're actually being compensated for matters. So Josef Schumpeter, the father of modern entrepreneurship, the understanding, the, the professor at Harvard, but, but he was a visionary. He said that entrepreneurs actually don't care about money per se more than the fact that it's a scorecard for what they're building. This is the key thing. And so for entrepreneurs who are being really successful, don't think that your satisfaction is actually coming from the money. It's not. Your satisfaction is actually coming from the prosperity that you're creating. Sense of accomplishment and helping everyone. You're doing something beautiful. You're earning your success. Your skills are meeting your passions. You're serving other human beings. We can still serve everyone by building and creating, but we shouldn't be doing it to want to get our private jet. Yeah, look, St. Thomas Aquinas in 1265 writes the Summa Theologia. 
And he says basically that there are four idols that people chase in life. Money, power, pleasure, and honor, by which he meant fame, and which which we mean prestige in life. Those are idols that never bring satisfaction. They, they, they run you in the wrong direction. If you want to be ambitious, be ambitious for the truly the four things that will enduringly bring authentic happiness. Faith, family, friendship, and work that does only two things, where you earn your success and you serve other people. And by faith, I mean life philosophy, the transcendent, something bigger than you. Faith, family, friendship, and work. Be ambitious for those four things, and the world's your oyster. Faith, family, friendship, and work. Yep. I want to ask a little bit about poverty, because mm. it's something you spend a lot of time on. Yeah. One of the most inspiring uh, things I was ever at is a, is a couple of times when we were at Sea Island, and you were and you were sitting there speaking to everybody. And it's, it was great, because you had like probably like over 100 billionaires in the room. And we were, and you were inspiring everyone about how to help the least well off in our society. And you, I think you really, you really did a great job. I think for a lot of the right and transforming the focus to be our values are only really good if we're if we're helping the least well off. It's, right. it's clear you really care about that. Uh, you know, it's it's also you know, the U.S. The U.S. government since the war on poverty has spent trillions of dollars, hasn't really worked. Uh, we're about to spend trillions more right now. I think we're about to print four trillion more dollars is the current debate and discussion just right. to, to supposedly help with poverty. It doesn't seem to be working. We're still doing it. What's what's going? What, what should we be doing? And, and is it going to work this time at all? Like they're spending all this money. What are, what are they doing? Well, what what we've done since 1964, 1964 when the war on poverty was declared by Lyndon B. Johnson, and but it's really 1966 when the programs were up and running, is that we 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 have the, the poverty rate has bounced around between 10 and 15 percent every year. Every year since then, despite the fact that we spent somewhere around $20 trillion in the war on poverty. And so that's, you know, that, that's failure in any industry except government, yeah. quite frankly. I mean, you wouldn't get the investment year after year after year. However, let's not underestimate actually how much it, it has allowed pe- the war on poverty and the programs have allowed people to suffer less, suffer less the, the, the depredations of poverty, the, you know, the, the, the public health crises, the, 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 the deaths that didn't have to occur, which is really good. But so so it's, helped, it's, helped, it's helped some. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's, and, you know, and, and, and people on the political right really need to recognize that. Yeah. The problem is not that poverty has become more bearable. It has become more bearable. The problem is that poverty is not more escapable. So when we say 10 to 15%, I mean, this is extremely relative. I'll give you an example. Today, the person at the 10th percentile economically in America mm-hmm. lives in the same square footage of, of housing as the person at the 50th percentile in 1980. Wow. So think about that. It was 1980. I was a sophomore in high school. I realize you weren't born yet, but, you know. <laughs> Almost. A couple of years. <laughs> that after. was so depressing, man. Anyway, so, you know, what was the, and we were a lower middle class family. We were the 25th percentile economically as I was growing up on the north side of Queen Anne Hill in Seattle. Very, you know, it was in those days a working class neighborhood. Yeah. Um, these days, who knows? It's probably like, you know, the bedroom for Amazon or something, right? Probably, yeah. Yeah, a hovel is, you know, a billion dollars or something. So the, the point is that, you know, this is really, really relative. Between 10 and 15% of the population, everybody is running water. You know, most, everybody's got a TV, everybody's a refrigerator, everybody has electricity. Yeah, so poor, poor, people poor people there are living lives of luxury versus 100 years ago. Yeah, right? exactly right. But, 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 they're, but they're still not happy. It's not, they're not happy because poverty is not escapable. Yeah. See, this is not how people are wired. The problem is with, you know, the, the, the welfare mentality of, of the elite classes and, and, government, and, and government officials is not that we can't relieve people of the worst, the, the, you know, the, 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 the depredations of poverty that leave people in the worst condition. The problem is that we misunderstand the human condition of what actually brings happiness. 
What brings happiness is being able to succeed on my merits, to actually understand my own passions. What, what brings happiness is to see that my life is an enterprise. I mean, you're an entrepreneur, and so you understand perfectly there's this yeah. unique adventure that comes exactly. from being an entrepreneur. Every single person watching us and listening to us today is an entrepreneur because the startup is your life. And when we actually take away the initiative of people to see their life as a startup, we truly have created poverty. That is poverty. So we need, we need people to feel wanted. Totally. We need to be people to feel needed. See, to be needed is the essence of dignity. Dignity is to be worthy of respect. And, and we believe in the West that everybody has radically equal human dignity. And part of that's coming from the Judeo-Christian understanding that, that we're made in God's image. So even if you're an atheist, you're, you're stewing in this concept of, yeah. of being made in God's image. And God is worthy of respect. And so every human is worthy of respect. To be worthy of respect means you have dignity, and nobody has less dignity than somebody else. Now, not everybody in the world believes that, but we fundamentally believe that in the West. That changed the world, by the way. And it's something that's a really, really important thing for us to keep in mind, notwithstanding your religious views at all. Okay, so what is the opposite of dignity? And the answer is despair. I was having this, it was watching this or listening to this speech by the, the Roman Catholic Cardinal of Chicago, Cardinal Francis George. He passed away a couple of years ago. And he was talking to his richest donors. And he was on the North Shore of Chicago. And he was talking about funding his poverty programs on the south side of the city. You know, a place that they'd like literally never been. Yeah. And he said, here's why they needed to fund these poverty programs. He said, the poor need you to pull them out of poverty. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you need the poor to keep you out of hell, right, <laughs> is what he said. And, and I thought about that, and I understand the theological significance of that statement. But then I thought, do we as a society need the poor? The problem that we have is we treat the poor as, as, as liabilities to manage as opposed to assets to develop. Now, you've run companies successfully, and you know you've got both liabilities and, 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 and assets. Liabilities you manage until you can get them off the books. Assets can be unbelievably unprofitable and expensive, but you develop them because that's the future well, your of your people, society. Your people are your assets, and, you, and the goal is to help everybody. Exactly right. You would never, yeah. I mean, your kids, you could treat them like liabilities or assets. You always treat them like assets because you want them to have dignity. Yeah. If you want people to feel dignity, People, especially who are in poverty, they need to be needed. So every public policy should ask the following question. Is this making people more necessary or less necessary? If it's, if it's devaluing their work or creating disincentives for them to work, if it's fragmenting their community, if it's giving them less of a desire or incentive to live with and care for their families, you've said to them that they are not needed, and that's the ultimate sin of public policy. That's what keeps us where we are. So let's, let's dig in on that policy a little bit more because it's, it sounds like it sounds like there's been a lot of bad policy over the last 40, 50 years. It's, yeah, it's basically sure. not, not making people feel needed. It's, I think a lot of this comes top down from DC and, and, and rather than letting people figure things out for themselves and self-actualizing, you're, you're imposing structures on them that take away their dignity. Um, one, one of my favorites to, to talk about is the Pell Grant program because Pell Grant's supposed to help poor people go to school, right? right? It's gone from 10 billion to about 30 billion over the last 20 years and student outcomes haven't improved at all. A lot of students are going to schools where there's, they're not graduating. Even if they do graduate, they come out and they become you know, protesters or whatnot because they can't get a job and they're angry and they're, and they're frustrated. Um, and and, and we, we've totally failed, it seems, to put in any kind of accountability to this government dollars, to the schools they're going to. There's no, we're not holding people accountable while we're spending. Why, why haven't we been able to fix that? You, you, you run a policy think tank. It doesn't seem that complicated. Texas actually fixed it with their technical schools here. Paper performance, salaries went up 61% in seven years just by putting some kind of you know, incentives into it. Why haven't we done that from D.C.? Well, 
government has traditionally always been bad at that at all times in all places over the entire world. And, and part of the reason is because the way that we understand government is fundamentally at odds with the way that you see your enterprises. So, so, so basically, bureaucracy and government, and again, I'm not casting aspersions. I mean, I'm grateful for the people who've dedicated themselves to public service. But fundamentally, it has a new You're way trend. nicer than I am about this. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, it's, and, and it's, they, it fundamentally has, it comes at the problem of public policy with a Newtonian perspective, mm-hmm. which is to say that you can scientifically engineer the way a society and a public policy system works. And this makes one big error. Now, you and I both studied a lot of math over our lives. And one of the the most interesting math problems is distinguishing between complicated and complex solutions. So a jet engine is a complicated problem. You know, it's just for years we didn't have, look, a toaster is a complicated problem. We didn't have a reliable toaster until 75 years ago. And if you try to build one in your garage today, you'll probably burn down your house. It's actually pretty complicated. But once you understand how to do it, you can set up a manufacturing process and and repeat it with effortless ease where it toasts your bread and it's a beautiful thing and it doesn't burn down your house. That's different than complex problems. Complex problems are super easy to understand and impossible to solve. They're adaptive. They tend to be human. Yeah. yeah, they're highly dynamic. And so if a toaster is complicated, a cat is complex. Yep. You know, you actually understand it pretty well. You know what it wants? A mouse. It wants to sleep. It wants to scratch. It wants warmth, right? But you never know what it's going to do. A football game is complex, which is why it's fun to watch and you don't simulate it on a computer and go home. Yeah. Love is complex. You don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you hope for the best, right? But that's the excitement, the exhilaration of life. And all of life's big problems that are hard to solve are complex, adaptive, human, dynamic problems. And all of the solutions that we get from government are complicated. So we need government bureaucrats to contemplate love more often. What you you want is an iterative thing where actually people were, were learning along the way so that we can actually get something that's a simulacrum for the complexity that actually we need complex solutions for complex problems. That's not what government is. Is you know, when 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 Woodrow Wilson, before he was president of the United States, yeah. before he was governor of New Jersey, before he was even president of Princeton University, he talked about scientific public administration. Contemplate scientific public administration. Well, it's, it's, it's very Soviet in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. basically Goss plan. Yeah, which was a complicated solution to the dynamic, comp, uh, complex human. Uh, adaptive thing that well, is. Well, we that keep, is the we keep doing this again and again, though, in every yeah. area. The way we run prisons, the way we fund universities, the way. The just get me enough data, know. man. Just get me enough yeah, data. So you know it's not true. So, so this seems like just such a core mistake. Uh, do we publish a lot on that and just teach people? Like, why haven't people realized this? Is this, way, is this how you become a certain sort of libertarian if you do realize this? Or, like, like, like why don't more people realize well, this? Well, part of it is we don't want it to be true. We don't want to be. And, and by the way, this is not a knock on government. The, the, the problem with social media today is social media is a complicated solution to a complex problem of loneliness. It's a it's a basically it's an it's an app based complicated engineering solution to the problem of love. That's why it's utterly inadequate and not up to the task. So you're saying every area of society is being every area of society. And, and that's the reason, by the way, that as we get more complex as a society that we get less and less satisfied with the solutions. We turned the keys in, in America over to bureaucrats and engineers 30 years ago. We, I mean, it's like we basically we pump all of the money and resources and time and affection and energy into bureaucracy, which is massively expanded and to engineering and tech. And, and, and we're less happy. And we, and we know, well, I want to go one more time back to this policy area. 
So, so criminal justice reform. I, I sent uh, I sent a long note to Robert Doerr this week because I'm obnoxious, and I said, I said Robert Doerr, by the way, is my is my successor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great, for, great. President he's an amazing guy. guy. Fantastic. And 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 I'm very frustrated because for me, the answer uh, in a lot of these areas is you take what works in a free society, and you and you and you create incentives and transparency that are dynamic, and let people right. at local levels decide and figure it out. And and all the criminal justice reform I've seen coming out of DC, which includes AI, is much more biased around studying programs and trying to apply one size fits all on everything. So trying to get the bureaucracy basically say, here's what works and here's what we're going to do. And I, and I, and I, and I see, so, so even out of AI, but out of all, out of all groups in DC, they're all still doing these top down things. They're not doing frameworks and systems and things that, that allow things to work dynamically bottom up. Why, why, why don't we have more of those bottom up things coming even out of AI? Like what's, is it just so hard for people to understand this? <laughs> well, part of it is that you know, the, the idea of distributed knowledge is not well understood or well accepted. We want people who are going to come in and give us solutions. We want saviors. Look, we want people who went to Princeton mm-hmm. to tell us what to do. That's actually, or Stanford in your case. We want, did you, you went to Stanford. I went to Stanford, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great school. It's not as good as Harvard, but anyway. You, <laughs> it's a, it's like, they tried to be Harvard. They, they hit MIT accidentally. Anyway, you get my, you get my point. You guys have had one or two good companies you built out of Harvard. One, 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 one or two. I know, I can't. <laughs> so, but you know, the point is that my, they, the world wants my students to come up with the solutions. Look, we invested in you. We believed in and you. The, the solution should be bottom up, not top. That's down, the is- great paradoxical truth of life, man. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's the most amazing truth, which is that, that knowledge tends to come because you wire batteries together all over the place and, and things emerge. And that's not how humans are designed. We want a king. We give me a king. I mean, it's like we had a distributed set of judges in ancient Israel, and they're like, "No, we want a king." Yeah. What was that going? That was going human, from the complex instinct. solution to the complicated solution, and you saw what happened in the Bible. It didn't turn out so great. It didn't. It didn't turn out so great. I wanna. I wanna step back. This is called the American Optimist. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of there's kind of a wave of pessimism that we're in right now. Yeah. And you know, in our, our country, do you think America's in decline or, or are we, are we just in a little interregnum where it's going to grow again? Is it actually still doing well right now? And we're just confused. Like what's, what's, what's going on? So there, of course, you know, you can, you can look, sort of salami slice what you're looking at and you can find any time where things are worse than they were before and say that's declined because axiomatically it's true. Yeah. The question is whether in the long-term dynamics of the situation, you're actually in, 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 you know, a nadir or, you know, what, you know, what, what yeah. is, yeah. and, and whether indeed you can turn it around. Now there's a huge cottage industry out there of saying we're doomed. We're in decline. There's nothing that we can do. And, and, and everybody's profiting from that, whether you're a culture warrior on the right or a culture warrior on the left, whether you're worried about people's morals or you're worried about global climate change, mm-hmm. you profit by saying we're super screwed. I mean, that's just kind of how it works. I just don't buy it. I don't buy it because looking at the long term of history, I mean, things turn around. Mm-hmm. What I'm really worried about is the fact that we're in this kind of secular decline right now in, in well-being. And, 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 and happiness. In happiness, yeah. So what, wait, when did, wait, did, we, did it peak at some point earlier and it's gone down a bit the last 20, 30 well, years? Well, we, we haven't been measuring long enough to know, and that's what's really a worrying thing. But what's, your, have, what's your instinct, though? You must have an intuition. My, yeah, my intuition is that really it turned around in the late 1980s. And that since the late 1980s, we actually have been a relatively secular decline where we came up a little bit at the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And, and most definitely, we have been in decline since then. And that's a really, really as far as I'm concerned, that's a really big problem. But in, 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 in a way, it's not that I'm an optimist. It's that I'm hopeful. And the difference between optimism and hope is that optimism says, 
it's going to be okay. Hope says, I don't know, but there's something that can be done and I can do something about it. And so I'm a really, really hopeful person. The reason I'm dedicating my career, my life to the idea of, 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 of happiness. It's not just because I'm trying to be sort of a pan glossian character in all of this. It's because I think there's a lot that we can do. If we I've all think, seen, if we all think about it. We could take actions and plan for happiness. Well, this is the key thing. You know, if I know by looking at the data, all of us start our, our happiness journey in different places, you know, and 50% of your happiness is genetic by the way. So we have different baseline levels but we, if you study, it's not enough to wish. You have to work like anything else. You know, it's so, you know, you've had friends who say, I hate my job. I hate my boss. Nobody appreciates me. Are you on the market? No. Well, you're an idiot. Yeah. Then you're wishing. You're the one, you're the one creating the problem. Same yeah. thing is true with happiness. You've got to work. But if you to work to understand, you apply ideas to your life, and then you share those ideas with others. You, that, that last step is fundamental. You will get happier and you will have it metacognitive sufficient that you can manage your own happiness. I'm completely sure of that. Is this a cultural shift where we need to teach people how to do this? For sure. That's the reason I'm doing it. I want to start a movement, man. I want to start a movement. I want to start a movement where we remember that self-improvement is a real thing, that our life really is a startup. This is not about happiness. This is about empowerment, about taking control of our well-being in new ways and sharing it with other people. And, And imagine... I mean, imagine if the, you know, the thousands of people were listening to the American Optimist, if they basically got on board with the idea of a movement of self-improvement through the startup life with the science of happiness, the, the, the inflection, the turnaround in this country and around the world starts right now. How could people, how could people join your movement? What's the best way to be part of it and to learn so, and help? So send in money. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the best way for people to understand it is to actually start the best way for people to get involved is to actually start by understanding what's going on. That's the reason that everything that I'm doing right now is about teaching and understanding. I have a column that I write every Thursday morning on the science of happiness in the Atlantic. I have a podcast called the art of happiness. I'm in development for a television show. I'm de- I have a, a popular class at the Harvard business school called leadership and happiness to train the next generation of leaders in mastering and, and spreading happiness. We're starting a MOOC, a massive online open course through edX, which is a consortium between Harvard and MIT to actually spread this to hundreds of thousands or millions of people. So I'm doing what I can to actually create the lever. But look, we need ground troops. And, and who, who are these people going to be? It could be these entrepreneurs, these are everyday people who decide to get involved. Both, all. Yeah. You know, the truth is we're all leaders. You know, we all have leverage, whether it's around the, the kitchen table at home or whether yep. it's running companies or, you know, whether it's creating social movements, whether it's protests on the streets. You know, and, and the idea that we would try to use our unhappiness as our misery, mm-hmm. as some sort of a source of power is so unbelievably misguided. That's really, that, that's what a lot of the populism is right now. It's trying to harness yeah. unhappiness. Totally. You totally. Say so your counter to that is let's harness our yeah. happiness. And, and fundamentally under, undergirding that is a, is a truth, which is that you, you have one of two polarities in a culture at any particular time. So let's get back to your question of where we are in America today. Yeah. The problem fundamentally that we have is that we don't have a love polarity. We have a fear polarity. Fear and love are psychological and philosophical opposites. And you're in one of those two polarities in a family, in a community, or in a country at any particular time. Right now, we're in a fear polarity. And I could, we could talk all day long about how the financial crisis did that and coronavirus epidemic and the, you know, the political populism and polarization all led into this. Mm-hmm. It's all related. 
But in fact, we needed to change our cultural polarity from fear to love. And, that, and that's our job as leaders. That's our spoilers. job. That's our job. And the, we don't do that by inculcating fear to get power. We don't do that. It's a, it's a hopeless and a, and, a, and a it's not a worthwhile use of a life, but it's fundamentally immoral to the people that we're trying to lead. That's amazing. Well, Arthur, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you for you know being an American optimist. I'm delighted to be with you, and I'm really <laughs> happy to have your friendship. Thank you. 